you know what, you can go to maybe on Friday and you can go to the jewelry store and see if they have any sales on some nice jewelry. And the options are diamonds and and necklaces with pennants and you know maybe you're just a little bit too cheap for diamonds so you got to go something a little different so this is what you do you see this nice gold necklace with a cross here's the challenge when people buy a necklace with a cross how many of them immediately go back 2,000 years and think about the reality of what took place? Our text today is about the cross and the crucifixion. Uh, a deep passage, a heavy passage, and I'm going to be honest with you, I'm going to skirt the surface with it. We could spend three, four weeks. Scott started it last week, and we could spend a lot of time, but we got to fly pretty high. But let's read it. Mark chapter 15, I'm going to begin with verse 20. Look how it reads, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled the passerby, uh, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was on the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one in his right and one in his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now today we come to a text that if you were to give this a movie rating, I really think you'd have to put that R rating on it in what took place and what it represents. But if you've grown up in a church or you've been around the church or Christianity for a long time, the reality is, is that we can read the words on this page and we can all begin, maybe begin to even yawn. Oh, this is the story of Jesus dying on the cross. See, I think the challenge is, is that we can move to a place intellectually where we really don't understand the depth of this story. Now, I think part of it's this. We're a culture that's moved to become so much visually orientated. The print at times fails to capture our hearts. I think it's why the passion of the Christ movie really was so stunning in that we saw some things in the visual sense that we just don't hear when we read the words. But I think this is the reality. Uh, one author pointed this out. 2,000 years later, we have sanitized or watered down the crucifixion of Jesus. See, we sing songs and hymns about the cross that leave us even feeling good at times. And it should to some degree. 
But I can't help but wonder if we miss some things. But let me push you a little farther here in the introduction. I I talked about jewelry even with the cross, a a necklace with a cross. The cross has been commercialized. You know, I did a bit of pre-study before the vacation last week, and it struck me during the vacation how many people wear crosses, both men and women. And, And some of you, Maybe have a cross on this morning. Now, my goal isn't to offend you in that sense, but I hope that you think differently as we look at this crucifixion and what the cross actually means. Understand, there is a complexity with the cross. And let me give you a couple realities. If you're following along in the sermon outline, I said it this way, the first one, a reality. God loves sinful people. Therefore, the cross and the crucifixion God cares about sinful people. And if he didn't do that, there would be no story for us today to even walk through. Understand, the undercurrent of Mark 15 is that God so loved the world that he sent his son to die on a cross. That who would ever believe in him, believe that of what he did on the cross, the reason for that would have life eternal. See, God's, the cross points to the love of God. But there's another reality of the cross as well. I said it this way. Man hated righteousness. Therefore, the cross. Man hated righteousness. See, Mark 15 reveals the absolute unrighteousness and the depth of man's depravity. So many people believe, understand, in this world and even in the churches, you know what, I'm righteous by doing some really good things. I work for a cause, whatever. But understand this, the cross points to something, the depth and the, and the chaos of sin in our lives. And it reveals, I think this, the utter contempt toward pure righteousness and pure love. See, the world thinks in many ways when you listen closely, even in politics and whatever, people keep fighting for, quote, love. And I don't think we realize that they crucified real love here. But think of even the contempt of what was going on in this story as as Scott looked at it last week and leading up to the cross here. The contempt of these men toward Jesus From last week's text, they're not going to read it, verse 17. Remember, they put robes on him to humiliate him. Why? Because he claimed that he was a king. They put a crown on his head. And I don't know if you know that a crown back then often was reserved for heroes that would come back from war. They would put some wreaths around his head and it would be signaled to the world that here was a victor, a conqueror. And what did they do? They put a crown of thorns into his head. So the blood would ooze down on, onto his, his head and it would create pain for him. You see the contempt of people, the unrighteousness of people. They used him as almost a parody. They ridiculed him. 
In verse 18, it says they saluted him as if he were Caesar. Phony praise. And Luke tells us that they put a, a reed in his hand. It was a mockery of, the sept, of a scepter. The symbol that one had the right to rule. In 19, they spit on him, the opposite of a kiss, opposite of affection. And then in mockery, it says that they were kneeling before him. His position, mocking his power. But you notice even in verse 31, here was the religious elite. The religious elite, the the high priest and the, the Pharisees, the people that were the church people. They mocked him. I think what they were, they were clo- it was close enough where they were talking amongst themselves so Jesus could hear it. And one of the other Gospels says this, what they told him. They said, if you are the Son of God, come down. Show us what power you have. If you are the Son of God. Remember when those words were spoken before? It was by Satan in the desert. If you are the Son of God. See, Satan is still working here through the uh, soldiers, through the, through the high priest, through the religious elite here. And Satan, listen to this, Satan would have wanted nothing more than for Jesus to actually come down off the cross. Because if Jesus would have come down, Satan would have won. Do we realize that? But God's will had to be accomplished. See, the reality is 2,000 years later, we've sterilized the cross. We put jewels on it. We make it presentable to our day so a Madonna or an Oprah can, can wear it and almost be a political symbol. As I watched people on that vacation... Time and time again, I'd see a cross, and because I had done that pre-studying a little bit, I'm just wondering, do these people have any idea what the cross meant? I don't think so. But here's where we got to go even farther, because we need to understand that crucifixion was common in that day. And if people would have been walking by where those three were hanging on the cross, that would have actually been quite normal, other than the fact that there was more people than usual around these three that were hanging there on the side of the road. This was a common event. See, understand this. This was reserved for non-Roman citizens. That's what crucifixion was for. If you were a Roman citizen, you didn't die this way. But here they would take what it was, well, what it was really about was to deter crime. And so they would take criminals and they would crucify them and just put them along the side of the road. Josephus writes, sometimes they didn't have enough crosses to hang the criminals. See, but in their minds, it was just a deterrent and an effective way of dealing with crime. Why wouldn't you make it an example? It was a lot cheaper than putting them in prison. Now, I understand in our day, when we think of crucifying or putting somebody to death, we've moved to a place where I think we think we're civilized. I'm not so in agreement with that. But we look at capital punishment and we go, we, inv- we view that as inhumane. 
But understand where depravity can go. That hanging people along the side of the road was never intended to be humane. It was intended to be inhumane. It was to maximize pain. See, history tells us that even what they would do is that the crosses at the side of the road where they'd hang the criminals, the height even mattered. They made sure that they were no more than about two feet off the ground. And the reason for that is that when they were hanging there, dying very slowly, that the wild dogs could come up and chew on the bottom of their feet and their legs just to increase the pain. See, the nails that they put in the wrists and the hands were meant, it wasn't just to hang there, it was also to increase pain. Now remember, I don't know if you've caught in a few pictures, if you look closely at some of the pictures, some of the pictures of the cross also portray either a spike down toward the bottom of the, below the feet or a little wooden block. And I don't know if you've caught what that's about because what would happen if they were hanging there and, and they were just, what, when they were breathing, you could breathe in a, a breath, but when you're hanging, it's hard to exhale. So what they would do is they would put a block or a spike down on the, on, on the cross and then the criminal could lift himself up again and exhale. Now you got to catch this though. It wasn't to be kind. It was done to lengthen the suffering, to die a bit slower. And then what they would do at some point, they would take cruelty to a next level. Because as they could they could stay living for a long time and then they'd come along, and what they would normally do is they would break, they would come and smash the right tibia. And it was to cause agony, but also cause where now they weren't be able to push themselves up or they had to push themselves up with a broken leg, trying to breathe and trying to just stay alive just a little bit longer. See, that is the reality of the cross. Now, we've got to catch this. One of the things you'll see in here as we read, you'll notice that Jesus died quickly. And why? It's this, because he was so beaten before he even got nailed to the cross. He didn't even have the strength to survive the days like other criminals would have if that was normal to hang on those crosses. So when we wear that piece of jewelry, when we look at the idea of, of a cross like this, this isn't really about joy. It really isn't about happiness, and I, I understand why we can go there. But if you were to describe the reality and put words that were really centered about the cross, I think we would have to use words like offensive. And, and maybe we'd have to say this, the cross, this cross is obscene, is a better word. See, the utter contempt toward life, utter depravity, to hope that a man would die slowly, to have more agony. As I ponder that, it just reminds us that 
mankind, when it's left unto themselves, they move even deeper into sin. See, when men and women refuse to allow God's righteousness to be the standard for what's right and wrong, it shows a contempt for God and His Word. And and people inevitably will still move toward self-righteousness and toward contempt, claiming that they can be their own gods. They know better than God. These men that were putting Jesus on the cross, they were playing God to the extreme. And they were enjoying it. Let me keep reading. Look at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. It's saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Some more mocking. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Let me just pause there for a second. Here was a Roman soldier. He caught it. And the religious people that were hanging around, they missed it. Verse 40, there were also women looking on from a distance and among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come since he was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking uh, for um, looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Did you catch that right there? And it should have been a longer death. And Pilate was surprised. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now, I don't have time to dig into some of the details, but I got to point out just an observation here. You notice that Jesus doesn't fight death. He embraces it. And it doesn't say that he uttered things to the crowd, that he spoke to the crowd. He talked to the two that were next to him a bit. But he endures it willingly. See, what was going on? Folks, he was drinking of the cup that God had given him. The cup of wrath. The judgment, that cup, was our sins. Now, does Jesus love the suffering? I go, I don't think so. But he loved people so much more. And that's why he suffered with no complaint. 
I don't know if you also realize that this was also to fulfill prophecy. In the Old Testament where they were pointing toward Jesus. I want to show you Isaiah chapter 53. Look at verse 4. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us is turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before the shears in silence. So he did not open his mouth. Prophecy fulfilled. Isaiah writing what was going to happen and dealing with the sin issues of the world. But here's where i, I got to point out a couple pieces for application for us today. Look at verse 37. I want to go here just a minute. And, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, what is that last cry? He had cried earlier, Father, why did you forsake me? But in this one, Luke records a little bit what was said in that last couple words. And Luke records this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathed his last. Hanging on that cross, with the last breaths of his life, he had just finished drinking the cup of God's wrath. Remember a couple weeks ago, we were in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he went to his father and asked his father three different times, Father, would you take this cup from me? Would you not, would, could I maybe not do this? Do you understand what the answer was, was no. Son, you have to drink the cup. The cup of judgment upon sin. See, but something in this, as he finished his last breath, back in the temple, you understand, it's tore from the top down. Now, it wasn't people pulling it from the bottom. From the top down, it split and it opened up into the Holy of Holies. And, and you, do we catch the symbolism in there for the application on your notes? I said it this way. A new reality started at the moment of, la of the last breath of Jesus. People now have direct access to God through Christ. This was a profound symbol symbolic issue here. See, up to that point, even days before that, people were bringing their lambs and their, their sacrifices to the high priest and to the temple, and then they would take them and sacrifice them on the altar. Why? To put off God's wrath for a little while. And at that moment, when the temple, when the curtains were torn apart, the under, you catch this, the high priest became irrelevant And the reality for us is we no longer need a priest, a high priest, to have access to God. We go directly to God 
And this was the moment that it started for us. I want to show you Hebrews chapter 9. Look at how it goes. So Christ had now become the high priest over all good things that have to come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which is not made by human hands. It is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That's why he's the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the internal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they committed under the first covenant. We must embrace to the depth of our souls, that we now have access to Jesus and the Father. That we can have a personal relationship with God the Father that they could not have. The God who made heavens and earth. So when Christ breathed that last breath and the veil was torn, you understand what it meant is a personal relationship where we go to the throne of God directly. And we can address him even differently. Jesus has been hinting at this, by the way, all through the New Testament. Using, changing a phrase and using the chain word, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. It set us free, in one sense, to figuratively climb up in the lap of God the Father and come to Him in that way. But there's another application I think I want to make sure that we dig here just a second. Let me give it to you for the bulletin notes there. There's a new reality. Embracing Christ's work on the cross leads to real spiritual freedom. Look at verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the, for the body of Jesus. Now catch this. Here was a man, Joseph, part of the Sanhedrin, and we figured that he was wealthy. And why is that he actually had a tomb already for himself? And back in that day, that just wouldn't have been common. So he had money. But here was a man who was shrinking back. Maybe the phrase that's used in our culture. He was living in the shadows, not wanting to let his buddies around him know that he was a follower of Jesus and admirer of Jesus. And you wonder, okay, why was he hiding? I don't know. Maybe it would have hurt his wealth or would have hurt his standing in the Sanhedrin. If he would have stood up and said, you know what? Don't crucify Jesus when they were having these conversations. He, he probably would have lost a voice. He, he would have lost influence. At the very minimum, he was a guy that had shrunk back, hiding. And you understand, for the cross, all of a sudden, something happens here in his life. He gets courage. 
And there's courage that's going to set him free. He goes to the governor, to Pilate, and he obviously going to him. You wouldn't have gone directly. You would have had to gone through multiple people to get to Pilate. And they would be asking, what do you want? Why do you want to see Pilate? I want the body of Jesus. But do you see the courage that all of a sudden was coming over this man? And he finally gets approval, and that's where Pilate was surprised that Jesus was even dead. But Joseph goes, and he takes the body off the cross. And then it doesn't say whether he carries it, puts Jesus over his shoulder, or puts him in a cart. And they don't know the distance between. There's some debate as to even where the crosses were and where the tomb was. But there had to have been a little distance where somehow he got that body into a tomb and wrapped them in a shawl. But this man was different now. He came out of the shadows and it set him free to follow Jesus. But what does this mean for us? To set us free. To know God. You see... God doesn't want us to shrink into the shadows as well as a follower of Jesus. He wants us to live in the light, willing to say, stand up and say, you know what, I love Jesus. You know, I can't keep, I keep wondering though, where were the disciples at this point? Why weren't they the ones that were asking for the body? They were the chosen 11. And yet this man, he puts his neck on the line all for a decent burial for his Savior. See, do we shrink back? And what is God calling us to be like this Joseph? So as we come to an end today, just the question for us, do we recognize the freedom that we have because of the cross, because he died? And the veil's been torn. And if you're a teenager here, do you know that Jesus wants you to live for him and stand up boldly for him? doesn't mean to be rude about it. But whether you're a teen or a young adult or older or really old, it doesn't matter. The question is, are we living in the shadows like Joseph of Arimathea did so long? And we need to come out and publicly proclaim to our workers in some way, goes, I follow Jesus and I want to worship him. I want to love him. I want to serve him. I'm going to ask the elders to come on up. How appropriate it is for us to take communion even on this day. This points to the blood being shed. It points to the brokenness of who he was as he hung on the cross. And I would remind you that we practice open communion here. That if you know Christ is your Lord and Savior, please participate with us. We do ask that you would hold the elements. And guys, go ahead and, and hand out the bread. But as you, as you take the bread, just hold it. And I'm going to pause just a minute even before we say anything up in just a minute. 
But would you just stop and thank the Father and the Son and the Spirit for the crucifixion, for Jesus drinking the cup of the Father's wrath for us. Thank you.